Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Okay, no big intro because this is kind of a long episode already, but I wanted to briefly say I know this week a lot of teachers wrapped up the school year here in Los Angeles. We have one more week to go, so if you're almost there or you're done, congratulations, you did it. You made it through this year, and I hope you have a wonderful summer to look forward to and just get to take some time to rest. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here, as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. Our featured artist this week is Gladys Leroy. She's a 28-year-old artist from Paris, Inspired by the women of her family, she expresses her creativity in French feminist projects. She moved to New York in July 2019 and has now been featured and exhibited in both countries. I will be sharing her work this week on the blog and on Instagram, and I am going to let her share her statement in her own voice, which is exciting to be able to hear. As seen through my body of work, I offer my audience a unique look into my dreamlike world. I employ a variety of illustration styles that are brought to life through watercolor and gouache. I am passionate about glorifying women's natural beauty, strength, and freedom. My artwork seeks to empower women through their femininity and their human rights to express their sensuality. I am always representing white nature, mixing women's figures and botanical inspiration with a spiritual approach to do an ode to nature. Nisa Floyd talked about honoring her feelings through her internal and personal art practice and how that also allows her to honor her students' feelings in the classroom. Her gardening and plant metaphors are so beautiful and meaningful and woven throughout our conversation. She shared her experiences feeling the need to be a savior and then checking that need and asking how she could turn that urge to something truly helpful. She talks about art as a solution, as a way to create space for dialogue, and a way to tap into some of the deeply rooted beliefs that we need to change. The way she communes with community and asks, what does support look like for you, is a model for institutions wanting to change systemically. We talked about shame and the power dynamic within breaking down a culture of white supremacy and how so often the work being done is not breaking down these systems at a skeletal level, but instead adding a pretty dress on top of this deformed skeleton. 
Nisa talked about her worries that her work at the institution could end with her and how she's working to institutionalize change and develop systems rooted in community-based planning of programs. This conversation left me thinking deeply, considering how I can come back as a flower, for myself as a human, for my daughter and family, but also for my communities, my students, fellow art educators, and artist mothers. This is a good one, but it is a long one. I encourage you to listen to the whole thing. If you have to do that in fits and starts, that is totally okay. That's the awesomeness of a podcast. Uh, Enjoy this conversation with Nisa Floyd. I am speaking with Nisa Floyd from Atlanta today, and I am excited to hear more about your experience. Could we start with your background? How did you get into art making and working in the arts within education? Well, this is a very layered question because Mm -hmm. I always have to start with being raised in Brooklyn and going to the Met for free. Uh. And so that being my first experience of fine arts and being Mm -hmm. able to have that as my playground. But as I got older and specifically when I was studying undergrad, I was studying French studies and Mm -hmm. was traveling a lot. And so I went to Senegal and did an internship at an orphanage. And I think that was the moment I realized the best way for me to be able to navigate this new space with all of these children who have all of these different layers of understanding and development and trauma Mm -hmm. to use art as a tool to educate them in language and in English, which was the goal. But I think once I realized where I was at in Senegal and realized the complexity of the situation, art just seemed like the best answer for that. Mm -hmm. So after that internship, I came back and began seeking out artistic experiences, specifically in education and and in non-traditional education institutions. Yeah. And then what led you to Atlanta? So you were in Brooklyn, you traveled. When did you end up in Atlanta? Atlanta. So I moved here when I was young in elementary school. I believe I was 10 years old. And we moved here, my mother, my sister, and my twin brother and I, because family was here. And in Brooklyn, as beautiful as it is, there was still so much happening politically and educationally that my mother thought it best for us to be raised in Georgia. And so part of that being the public school system in New York wasn't at the time very forgiving. So resources were very limited. There was no flexibility when it came to different types of households. So if you Mm -hmm. weren't a two-parent household with an abundance of resources, you ended up at, you know, PS 155, which was a great school, but didn't have the resources that it needed. And oftentimes my mother felt that we were being overshadowed or swallowed by the circumstances. So we moved to Georgia, specifically Fayetteville. And it wasn't until I studied at Georgia State University that I ended up in Atlanta full time. And I've just been here (laughs) ever since. Yeah. And then I love what you were talking about with the complexity of 
really of human experience and how art can be used as a tool to kind of dig into so many layers of experience. How have you felt like you've used, you've continued to use that beyond Senegal? I think most of my teaching style is about infusing a social, emotional learning technique and an autobiographical technique into the lessons. So for instance, when I was teaching at a Montessori school, being able to hear the kids telling their stories, whether it's a good day or a bad day, and then utilizing that as the outline of the lesson for the day of, I need to be able to navigate who they are as people, because until they are grounded in themselves, whatever curriculum I'm trying to place on them will be lost or forgotten or won't connect because so-and-so is going through a tough time with his parents getting divorced or Mm -hmm. someone else is being bullied. So I think as much as I'm interested in educating about the specific subject, whether it's language or math, I also have to understand that until their minds are able to absorb that information, those things have to be secondary sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the arts are a way to express those stories and express who they are as people. Yeah. The arts, it saves so many children from losing themselves. One of the lessons that I love doing is just a play on the game telephone. And Mm. so everyone writes a line in a poem and we just go throughout the classroom just sharing your feelings. And at the very end, you have this communal experience of what we're going through. And you're able to relate to line seven when your friend was talking about being outside. And, you know, then we acted out. And what does acting out those feelings look like? And how do we honor that about ourselves? And, all right, let's make a story or a graphic novel and, you know, have this twist on whether it's a good or a bad feeling. How can we honor that? How can we visualize it? How can we recite it in ways that make us feel connected so that we can take that to the next subject of maybe you're working on abstraction and you're just and you just want to get all of your feelings out. So I have the children warm up by just scribbling without mm-hmm. intention, just scribble. And then I ask them to use that as a framework for a world they'd like to exist in. Mm-hmm. So some children will write in the margins where they'll only write in small little pockets of their scribbles. And some mm-hmm. will create a city or a new alien. And so I think a lot of art can be helpful, even if it's not creating this masterpiece, but simply using that as this jumping point for the rest of the day, the rest of their lives. I think it's Mm -hmm. important and it's essential and it's unfortunate that no one outside of the arts or very few people outside of the arts understand its essential space in education. Yes, yes. Uh, And I I love what you're saying, too, about honoring the feelings, whether they're good or bad, and taking time to express, just express how you're feeling without the pressure of this preconceived idea that we're making this masterpiece, we're making this product. Oh, for sure. I think 
even my own artistic practice. It's not something that I share with people. It's a very internal practice. Mm -hmm. And the goal for me is to eventually get to a place where it can be consumed, but not all things have to be consumed. Not all things Mm -hmm. have to be shared or sold. And I think that's the misnomer of art Mm -hmm. is that you have to be selling this. If you're not selling it, then what's the point? The point is the creation of the thing. And that Mm -hmm. is it. And that is all it has to be. That's why, you know, although I speak about the business of art with children, depending on what grade level they're in, a lot of it's just like, it doesn't have to be a business. It can be right. it can be what it is and you can be who you are without this idea of productivity and capitalism dictating how you interact with yourself in the world. Mm. Yes, yes. I feel like I ask a lot and I talk a lot about the business side of being an artist because I feel like it's something that we often don't get anywhere. Like we're never taught how to handle that. But I also just so agree with what you're saying that it's if you want to make work just for yourself, that's completely okay and and like wonderful. And I think it's, I work at a museum here in Atlanta. It's a nonprofit mm-hmm. organization called Atlanta Contemporary. And so I do manage the studio artist program. And we recently gave grants through the Andy Warhol grant initiative. So it's not to say that there's no place for that, right? I think we're both saying there's place for that. And it's important that more people invest in the arts. If someone wants that to be a career, it's important they have the resources for that. Mm -hmm. What I noticed about the current exhibition that we have up, it's the Atlanta Biennial. And the main exhibition is called Of Care and Destruction. It was curated Mm -hmm. by Jordan Amarcani. And I can see so much where the artists were creating with no intention of being seen and no intention of it being exhibited to the capacity that exhibitions are normally exhibited. So I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we were in quarantine and a lot of the work that came out of quarantine was for self, was this figuring out self. And once they were ready, they spoke with Jordan, the curator, and they worked through what that would look like to exhibit it. But a lot of these artists, when you look at the work in this show, they're working through some things. And it's important that that process be something that we're educating children on. Mm -hmm. This is the way that, you know, someone works through racism, right? They're living within this Black body and this Black existence and figuring out, well, what's next for me? And Atlanta being the the Black Mecca that people say that it is, there are so many Black children without the skill or tool or capacity to engage emotionally with themselves because they are in survival mode. We, as Black people, myself included, are in survival mode. And so using art to ground oneself, it's important, especially in the days ahead of us in the last two days that America has had. And Mm. so I think that's why my teaching style is very non-traditional, very Montessori, very, hey, sweetie, what do you need? What does support look like for you? How can community show up for you? Yes. Uh, It's so beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time that that is, is so necessary, so needed. 
And I'm, I'm also thinking about how these artists creating work that's really from the depths, really for themselves, how it feels to show that as the artist, but also how it feels to see that as the viewer, as, you know, children coming in to see the exhibit, like how, how they might feel. And maybe if you could talk about how the museum um, or the organization frames the work and if you're, you know, doing education around it, if there's any programming for kids around it, what that looks like. Yeah. So I think something our development manager once said is that the exhibitions are for the patrons, the programs are for the community. And so as the program coordinator, who's also at this point creating an education department, a Mm -hmm. large part of what I have been doing is figuring out the best ways to serve community. And so I have a lot of conversations with other organizations that cater to lower income individuals, people who are working through the lack of resources, whether it's food or educational resources or what have you. And so the programming is asynchronous because synchronous programming isn't always helpful when trying to resolve these paywalls and these lacks Mm. of. So currently, the Art Makes zine is a project I'm working on individually and incubating at Atlanta Contemporary. And this zine is to be distributed throughout the community and includes art supplies so that people can be introduced to contemporary art so that they see something other than what they've been seeing or have never seen, and just a small introduction to what this looks like and its relationship to self. Mm -hmm. One of the current lessons in the zine is related to one of the exhibitions or one of the pieces of art that is currently being exhibited, and it's about memory Mm -hmm. and ephemerality. And it goes, this lesson goes into what it looks like to show gratitude to a moment through art making and through archiving. What does it look like to collect pictures of your loved ones and recreate them in backgrounds that display everything that is unique and magical about them? Mm -hmm. What does it look like to create a film of all of the joys and create a manifesto of joy as it relates to your life? And so the goal of Art Makes is to, again, just give community resources that are tangible, that are accessible, that are inclusive, and that they can be safe in creating. From the Art Makes zine, there a step above that would be our contemporary kids program and our contemporary classroom, where Mm -hmm. we go into the classroom and we work with the classroom teacher on a lesson based off of whichever standards that they are interested in working through. Right now it's virtual, but it's still helpful to have an artist speak to a history teacher about how do I teach my children about plantations? How do I teach Mm -hmm. my children about Native American history and the ways in which they've been, you know, kicked off of their own reservations? How do I teach that through art so that it's not such a sterile lesson? Because I think it becomes really difficult not to have sterile lessons when we're on Zoom and just trying to push content on a child. And so through the museum, it's just, here's a resource, here's contemporary classroom and contemporary kids as a resource 
so that if you are in need of another mind or another way or avenue to teach something, we are here. It's just this staircase. And so whichever step you land on, that's the step that we will provide content for you. We have tours that are available and they're virtual and in person because we have been open since July 7th of 2020. So our tours, they are thematic. One of them is the Art as a Solution tour. So if you're in science class and you're studying pollution, then we talk about Art as a Solution and we look at all of the pieces of work in the museum and outside of the museum to think about how are people creating solutions to this or how are Mm -hmm. people visualizing the problem so that other people can come up with the solutions. And so a lot of it is very much just asking people what they need from me as a program coordinator so that I can do the work to support them in the ways that I know how and in the capacity that I have. Because I do believe that museums have a responsibility to community. Mm -hmm. And I think that the only way for them to be responsible and have sustainable relationships is to ask them what they need instead of just having things and just saying, oh, hey, we have it. You know, Mm -hmm. they have to be a part of the planning process. Communities and children and parents have to be a part of the programmatic structure. Well, what does this look like? All of the programs that we have at Atlanta Contemporary are in collaboration with community. And I think that's why they've been doing so well, despite being in a pandemic and despite people being fatigued, generally speaking, and with Zoom. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's so powerful having, you know, it's something that you don't see a lot of museums doing, (laughs) despite the, like you said, it's so needed and it makes the programs better. It makes it more effective to really plan with the community that you're aiming to serve. And yeah, it's sometimes confusing to me thinking like, why isn't that happening on a larger scale? But I like how you talked about, you know, the exhibitions are for the patrons and then the programming is for the community. And maybe that's where it gets lost at a lot of institutions where the everything is for the patrons. Exactly. And I think it's, I was speaking with a friend the other day about infrastructure. It's as much as people want to change these institutions, it's mostly they are interested in changing the outfits these institutions wear. But the bones are still the same. No one changes the bones. They just put a skirt or pants or shoes or a nice v-neck t-shirt. And it's the same thing, just Mm -hmm. marketed differently. And until institutions are interested in doing the real work of changing that infrastructure. Break a few bones. Break a few. uh, (laughs) You have to sometimes, sometimes. I have the luxury of working at a small, fairly young museum. Atlanta Contemporary is 43 years old. We have a staff of four Mm. and I am the program coordinator, the facilities manager, the studio artist manager, the outreach (laughs) and like I am, I wear all of these hats and I have, obviously it's tiring, but there's a luxury in being able to just make decisions on my own without very many hoops to jump through. I think the larger institutions, there are just more hoops. And when the infrastructure has, quote unquote, worked for so long, why would you take away those hoops? Why would you mm-hmm. talk to the community when you've been here for a while and funding seems to be going well and patrons 
like all the events that you do and the galas that you throw, like mm-hmm. it looks good. So why, if it works, why fix it is essentially the issue. Right. Yeah. And that analogy of just changing the outfit, changing the clothes makes so much sense. I see maybe another way institutions are trying to shift is we talk about like breaking down, breaking the bones. I feel like some of them are adding a new limb, like we're not going to change, but we're going to like add this new thing that we're going to (laughs) do. Yes, they love a good addition. And it's very interesting because where is it going to go? Like, have you thought about how that new thing will, you know, coordinate with the things that are already in existence? Have you thought about how you're now exhausting? And I'm I'm going to use race specifically. That's because, you know, Mm -hmm. as a person of color, I see how these diversity, equity, and inclusion committees are popping up all over the place. And my question is, how can we can't just make HR better? How come we can't, like, how can we can't call out microaggressions in the office and treat them as if you would treat any other abuse within the office? If someone Mm -hmm. steals from the office, you, you should, you know, get penalized. If someone, Mm -hmm. a microaggression is, it's abusive and it's toxic. And so why allow those things in the infrastructure to sustain themselves? and just add a department or a committee where we get to talk about it after it's happened. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem like good problem solving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I saw, I don't remember who it was. One of the educators that I follow and try to listen to was sharing on Instagram a post that was talking about all these committees popping up and then all the like professional development sessions that are happening, but that they're often led by white people for white people. And, you know, the people of color that are asked to come to these just feel like, you know, who are you talking to? Like, this is, I shouldn't be here. Um, It's very much like, why could I not have gotten PTO? Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think I think it's important that white people be having these conversations with other white people, because Mm -hmm. sometimes when you are you have very good intentions and you Mm -hmm. realize that the impact was still dangerous and the impact was still unkind and the impact was still harmful that's a blow to someone's ego to think that you have been an ally for so long and then to now realize that you haven't been an ally in the way that you thought. I can imagine wanting to be around people who look like me so that I don't feel intimidated by the Mm. drasticness of my actions of, you know, I can imagine being a white ally and you're in a room with a a black person who said, you hurt me. I mean, it's tough. I mean, it's kind of like parents not forgiving themselves and saying, okay, maybe I should apologize to my child Mm -hmm. because I hurt my child. But because of this hierarchy and this structure of power, there are allies who still don't want to seem 
like they don't have power or like they are something that they denounced so many times. So I think it's it's very mm-hmm. complicated to work through that. But I also think that it can't, these DEI trainings cannot be reactionary, that they mm-hmm. must truly be embedded into the infrastructure and not just added onto the existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I feel like you're, you have such a nuanced understanding that I don't know if if I even have. I feel like a lot of, you know, I'm a white person. I feel like a lot of white people lack that nuanced understanding. And, and that's where art comes in. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So like that's where we can do like art isn't just something that can be beautiful. Why aren't we including art in these diversity and equity and inclusion mm-hmm. trainings? Why are we not including art in these conversations about dismantling homophobia, transphobia, racism, xenophobia? Because those are amazing tools where there's no there's no judgment with how you create or what you are doing. But let's figure out how. Let's figure out the how. And let's mm-hmm. use art to do that. I think the reason why I firmly believe that art is essential and art can be a solution for so many things is because I remember being in, I worked at a Montessori school in Decatur and I remember taking my break, but we were short staffed. So I was still in the classroom, but I just wanted 15 minutes where I didn't have to like talk to anybody and I could just regroup because children can be exhausting as much as I love them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I just wanted to regroup and all the children kept coming up to me and the students just kept coming up to me and starting conversation. And I let them know and I was, I told them, hey, I always enjoy speaking with you all, but I'm having my break. If you would like to be with me on my break, I will read my book out loud, Mm. but I don't have the energy to converse about anything that's not related to this book. Yes. (laughs) Mind you, these are lower elementary students. So they're like seven to 10 and they're like, okay, I I can read it. It's a story time, right? And so I start reading this book, which is the autobiography of Asada Shakur, which is about Mm. Black Panthers. It's about racism. And as I begin Uh. to read this book out loud to lower elementary students, Uh. I realize, okay, there's going to be a lot of things I have to contextualize. (laughs) And so I actually asked everyone to get a piece of paper and start making origami because that was the week that we had been studying origami. So I asked them all to create a piece of origami while we were reading or while I was reading this book. That way they were not as tense and not just staring at me, listening Mm -hmm. to these words, but they could just work with something tangible. And so at the very end of the first chapter, I was asking people if they had any questions. And so they're just all folding. And as they're folding, one of the students, Max, he looks up and he says, this reminds me of the Holocaust. And I was like, oh, we're, we're going there. Okay. And so we're all just, I'm making a crane. Someone's making a box in it. Even though the art activity had nothing to do with the content of the conversation, it allowed Mm -hmm. us all to be in the same space that almost felt like we were creating it. Like from Mm -hmm. paper up, from ground up, we were creating this space where we were all equals whether you were seven or at that point I was 25, we were all just creating and making all of these mistakes and asking people for scissors and tape. And so that commonality and that community allowed us 
to be able to have a very amazing conversation to a point where once they're done creating things, now they're having their own side conversations. And Mm -hmm. I'm able to walk away knowing that they have the tools to communicate on their own. And then I Mm -hmm. could read my book and finish my break. Yes, that's so beautiful. And I mean, I feel like it's something that we relate to as artists, as adults, and often don't bring into the classroom. Just this idea of having something for your hands to do, something tangible, something you're creating something, whether it's related to what your mind is doing and what your voice is doing or not. Like I sit at my studio table and mush clay and play with materials while my brain is going to a million different places or, you know, I'm listening to another podcast or something. Yeah, that's something that we don't necessarily bring into the classroom, that idea of being in community and having a dialogue while our hands are busy creating. And then I just love that metaphor of you're, you know, you're creating something, but you're creating space too. And I think it's meditative. Mushing clay is so meditative. All of those textures and it's just such something you can get lost in while Mm -hmm. still doing other things. And one of the things that I'm really, really proud of is that as an educator, I have never punished someone Mm. for working with their hands. I think so many teachers that I have experienced and, you know, even in my own past and in childhood, you would get punished for for not focusing as if you Mm. can't focus and play with clay at the same time, as if that... Mm. You couldn't multitask. It was always so fascinating to me. Like I'm breathing always. Breathing is a very meditative thing, but I'm also thinking. And if I can multitask in that very simple way, what makes you think that I have to be making eye contact and, you know, put my hands on my thigh in order for me to be focused? Mm. What makes people not believe that part of that focus is ensuring that half of your mind is on one thing while the other half is doing something repetitive that takes little to no effort so that I can focus even more on whatever you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that I feel like when you were talking earlier about the students folding paper and working with their hands, I even thought about that idea of eye contact, that that can be that can derail a dialogue like that. That can be so intimidating that you, you know, don't say what you want to say or just get lost and and forget what you wanted to say. Yes. And I think that's why, again, what does eye contact mean to me if we're communicating? Why do I have to control how you communicate if what we're doing is working and it feels good for both of us? And I think the same element of, I mean, you said it perfectly, having those conversations, it's really hard. And having to make eye contact might mean saying something that you don't mean or saying something because you think I want to hear it. And then Mm -hmm. you just start performing cultural competence. I think Mm -hmm. as a callback to diversity, equity, inclusion training, it's intimidating. So when you have people gathered around in a circle and it's just like, all right, raise your hand if you're racist, that's intimidating. Raise yeah. your hand if you've ever done something culturally incompetent, because I I have done and said culturally incompetent things. And it's intimidating mm-hmm. to know that I will be shamed for my ignorance. Mm-hmm. 
so let's create something. Let's, yeah. let's use our hands. And that way I can be proud of something whilst also working through the shame of something else. So we can balance mm-hmm. out those feelings because I think that's it too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, our natural shame reaction is like put our heads down and, you know, don't look at the other person and, you know, kind of mumble, oh, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> exactly. But if you're, if your shame reaction is to look down and you're looking down to something that you're creating, mm-hmm. it, it balances out that feeling so that you are aware of that shame and you're working through that shame and you're reminding yourself, I hurt someone, but I am not a bad person. Mm-hmm. I said something unkind or incompetent culturally that mm-hmm. does not make me a bad person. It does not mean I'm not capable of good things and mm-hmm. being reassured of your own potential and being reassured that you are worthy and that your existence and feelings are valid no matter what they are. It's very, very, especially in a museum space, you know, just especially when museums have all eyes on them. I mm-hmm. feel as if museum educators and art administrators may not have the space to make mistakes. And that's why people double down on whatever mm-hmm. they're doing, because there's, I mean, it's high stakes. It's not a low stake job to be a museum that collects artifacts unethically. Mm, yes. Ooh, yeah. Very high stakes. I wanted to come back to the way you framed it earlier and, you know, talking about this idea of shame, but also having the space to work through that and the struggle as an institution with, you know, all eyes on you and you're, you know, you've got these high stakes with collecting and and sharing for the world artifacts. I love the way you framed it earlier as more of a almost like a parent child relationship that there's this power dynamic because I always you know I've always thought about this idea of like well I tell my daughter if you you know accidentally hurt someone you just say sorry or even if it's you know if you intentionally hurt a friend you just you know own up say sorry try to do better next time but there's a different aspect to it when there's that power dynamic. It's not just friend to friend. So yeah, framing the whole discussion in that way, you know, the person with power, in this case, the white person living in a culture of white supremacy has to kind of overcome that shame within themselves and overcome that feeling that they're losing power (laughs) that, you know, they shouldn't have had in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) But in order to to really, truly own up, say sorry, and then try to do better, honestly, truly try to do better by changing things, Definitely. you know, there's a lot to overcome. I feel, so you said two things. One of the things that I think is very important is this idea of power in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think humans feel as if they need control. And mm-hmm. People have to ask themselves in every moment, why do I feel the need to control this moment? Why do I feel out of control when someone doesn't react the way I want them to or say what I want them to? What is it in me that needs that? And where can I go to resolve that that is purely about me? Because Mm -hmm. 
most ways that people try and gain control has not, a parent trying to gain control of a situation. Sometimes, for example, you have a parent yelling at a kid for not tying their shoes and they're trying to control, oh, t- tie your shoes, tie your shoes. It's not about the shoes. Maybe you're running late and you have no control of the fact that you're late. So you try and control something else. So now right. you're just projecting onto something else. And so in terms of whiteness and superiority, what is your why? Why mm-hmm. do you, as a police officer, need a Black person mm-hmm. to raise their hands the way that you want at a traffic stop? Mm-hmm. Why do you need them to say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, the way that you want? Why do they have to do that for you? What do you need? Because mm-hmm. you're trying to control the situation because of a lack of control somewhere else that needs to be resolved. And so I think, and that's with every power dynamic, it's employer Mm -hmm. and employee, it's parent and child, it's parent and pet child. All of these (laughs) ways that we're just taking things personally. Yes, teacher and student. And which reminds me, I was shadowing a teacher once and she was wondering why the kids kept running around the classroom. And she kept getting frustrated and she would yell at them Mm -hmm. and put them in timeout. And then (laughs) she realized once we had a couple of different assistants in the classroom, she realized that the assistants were also watching the students run. So she went up to the assistants and she said, why are they running? And the assistant said, you're taking long strides. They're You want them to keep up, but you don't want them to run. So you have to choose which one you want more. Mm. And that's when she realized by putting them on timeout, she was trying to control their running when all she needed to do is control how fast that she walked. So here Mm -hmm. you have it, an authority figure trying to gain control of a situation outside of themselves instead of looking internally. Because once Mm -hmm. you do that, once she did that, the kids were walking normally because they didn't have to run to keep up with her. Your legs are really long. (laughs) (laughs) What are they supposed (sighs) to do? They want to go to the next lesson. They're trying to listen, but there's so many conflicting things. So, you know, Mm -hmm. control is a big part of a lot of, you know, situations that we find ourselves in. And no one's taught to reflect in the moment and figure out, well, why? Mm -hmm. No one's given the tools. What does it look like for when you want to control something if you hummed a theme song of a cartoon that you used to like as a child? Yes. (laughs) Uh, yeah, if you turn that urge internal, turn that urge inward. Because uh, I think that's a lot of all that. I mean, sometimes I get frustrated when, you know, I don't get an email within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And then I think about how toxic it is to even require someone to do something in 24 hours, knowing that mm-hmm. we're still in a pandemic. And above that, mm-hmm. we're people and we're trying. So when I feel, ex- I just go for a walk. I've just started leaving the office whenever I'm just exhausted or feel overwhelmed. I just go for a walk and I'll like touch flowers and like mm-hmm. try and figure out if I can recreate the texture of a tree with a mm-hmm. marker or, you know, start collecting pebbles and whatever it looks like and just going outside. I think control is something I never want to have, especially as a teacher. I never want to control the environment because this is not for me. You know, Mm -hmm. I am a conduit in this classroom, but I never want that dynamic 
to exist. I mean, obviously, I still have to make sure that if something goes wrong, I can administer CPR or gain control Mm -hmm. of the situation when it's necessary. But most oftentimes, it's not necessary. Right. And being able to recognize that and relinquish control can be so hard. I feel like this gets at that, you know, talking about breaking down the bones of the institution is so true for schools and for our education system, as well as museums. And all of these institutions are built on these layers of control. Yes. I I love that connection because it reminds me that maybe that's why these institutions are having a difficult time. Because Mm. to not have control means to ask the person you hurt how it hurt and how they can Mm. help. And they just don't know how to start. They just don't have that language. Mm -hmm. They need a little Daniel Tiger. (laughs) (laughs) They really do. But I'm hopeful. I'm definitely hopeful. So Mm -hmm. with the way that I obviously I'm someone who is very much about the art as a conduit for Mm -hmm. much, much more. So I'm hoping that as I educate, as I coordinate, as I commune with community, that I'm able to create an opportunity for Atlanta Contemporary as an institution to coordinate with other institutions on, hey, we used to hurt people with our negligence too. Mm -hmm. And this is what it looked like to resolve that issue, or at Mm -hmm. least to rectify some small piece of it. Because I don't ever want for an educator to email a museum and not be able to have support or not feel heard because the museum's end goals are different than theirs. Mm. I think that's my biggest fear is that if something were like if I ever leave this institution, that it won't be what it is to me now. Like it won't Mm. be what I'm trying to make it be. And so Mm -hmm. that's like I want to make sure that when I leave, there's still support here because it doesn't help to only have support for a year when someone's working Mm -hmm. there. Like if the support and the community engagement is only tied to an individual, Mm -hmm. then that there's no change in that. There's no infrastructural change anyway. Right. And then I wonder too, talking about the DEI committees, how many of those are also kind of in that same situation tied to individuals? Definitely. Definitely. I can see where they would. There are, despite Atlanta being a Black Mecca, there are a lot of museum spaces that only have one person of color. And I'm lucky enough to know a lot of those first. And so my friends and I will commune. And what I hear often is that we are the ones calling out the injustice or calling out the incompetence. And we are martyrs in so many ways, because in order to stay long in a position and in order to create the change necessary, there is a lot of mistreatment and plethora of other things that it's exhausting, but it's also necessary. But it's the question of like, well, why does it have to be necessary? Mm -hmm. So, And how long can you withstand? Yes. Uh, yes, that's a how long is such a good how long. And 
I'm very much a caretaker at heart. So I'm always just like, I'm going to protect all of the children and all of the kids and all of the Mm -hmm. BIPOC and all of the AAPI individuals that I will protect them. (laughs) And I think that's Mm -hmm. how I got into education because being at that orphanage, and mind you, I was 22 years old and I was just like, well, and at this orphanage, the administrators, their job was to find the families of these children who had ended up working on the street. And there's this long jaded history about what that looks like in Senegal. But I remember 22-year-old me wanted to adopt these Mm -hmm. children. And I was just like, if I just got a couple of jobs in Atlanta, then I would be able to protect them and all of these other things. And then I was just like, well, why are you trying to be a savior, right? Like they have family here. So what does it look like for you to use those resources? And then it's just like this spiral of, well, how do I help and how do I support? And so Mm. my biggest skill is being an educator and making that space. And so that is all that I have. I don't want to be a fundraiser. I don't want to be a development manager. My biggest tool and my biggest passion is being an educator. And so I'll use that to the best of my ability to not only educate the community and children, but to educate other institutions. And I hope mm-hmm. and I hope that that does just enough for us to peel back another layer of a toxic institution of mm-hmm. the arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and I feel like that that internal questioning, especially at age 22, is <laughs> impressive being able to say, wait a second, you know, why am I having this urge to be a savior and how else can I express this urge? Like what else could I do that might be more beneficial to the communities and to people that I want to quote unquote, save. Definitely. And I think that's why I got into the practice of just asking. That's knowing, knowing that that saver, that's toxic and it's very colonial. Mm-hmm. You know, 22 mm-hmm. year old me was just thinking of just like, well, where I am is better is essentially mm-hmm. the thought. Right. And so once I realized that that was colonial and dangerous, I just mm-hmm. began to ask people what they wanted, what mm-hmm. the support looked like for you, not for the school that you work at, not for the museum that you just left, but in this moment, as a person who is creating beautiful things, Mm -hmm. wanting beautiful experiences, what does support look like? Because I don't think enough people ask because so many people are trying to inflict their own version of savior complex onto someone. I even asked an artist a week ago and I'm because the work that I do is so tied to who I am as a person, it gets to be emotional. Mm-hmm. But I had a program, the Community Mural Project, which was this open call for artists to submit work as it relates to Atlanta futurism, which is a very mm-hmm. specific Afro Afrofuturistic idea related mm-hmm. to Atlanta and its blackness and its history. And I had a phone call with one of the artists and I was asking her about her practice and what she needed and, and you know, how she came into the arts as a poet and now a photographer. And at the very end of the Zoom call, I just asked her, what do you need and what does support look like for you? Mm-hmm. And she started to cry. And I was mm-hmm. just, and so then I started to cry because like, uh. you just can't help it. 
Mm-hmm. And so she said, no one's ever asked me that. Mind you, this mm-hmm. is an artist who's well into her 30s. No one's asked you what you needed? No one? And so my response to her was, well, no one asked me, so I always asked. Mm-hmm. And I feel like museum spaces should be vulnerable. You should be able to walk into a museum and ask for support and ask for what you need. You should be able mm-hmm. to get it. And so, at, you know, I know teachers are having a hard time. Send me an email. Let me know what you need. Mm. Parents are having a hard time. Send me an email. Let me know what you need. Because if I'm not doing that, what does it matter that I'm a program coordinator? If programs are for a community, then it has nothing to do with my end goal. What do you need? And how can I support that? And that is all. (laughs) Yeah. And then to turn that around, what do you need? What does support look like for you? Wow. No one's asked. Yeah. Um, uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I do mm. know that if I'm given, hmm, wow, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's one It's one to sit with maybe. Yeah. Sit with and, and let me know. Like, what can, what can I do? What can this little community I'm trying to build, what can... What can we do? Oh. I definitely have to have to think about that. But I appreciate you for asking. I truly do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's important. And that, you know, you've made me think I need to ask that question more. I need to add that to my list of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's it's one of those questions where you can't help but not think about the productivity of your life. You truly mm-hmm. when you're asked that question, work is always for me, just the last thing that I'm thinking about, because mm-hmm. I'm not asking about productivity. I'm not asking right. about your career trajectory, right? Like all of those things are very secondary because in mm-hmm. order to create, in order to feel like you have the energy to create, your primary needs have to be met. And though, yeah, what do those primary needs really look like? You know, you can think of the very, very basics of like food, shelter, water, but then what do you need in your, in your soul? Like, what do you, yeah. What do you need to keep yourself going forward just as a human? Yes. And I think one of the, the reasons why I left teaching at the Montessori school and started working primarily in the arts is because all of the ways that I was interacting with the children was in this very organic, abstract, artistic way. Mm-hmm. And one child who is hilarious, I remember she was grappling with death and grief mm-hmm. and she started drawing the pearly gates and so every person that she cared about she drew the pearly gates for them and so Mm. she drew the pearly gates for me and that that's the first time that I was really thinking about what she was going through internally Mm. and so when I asked her what she needed she said I just need the people that I love to feel loved back because I'm Mm. not sure if they do and I was just "Uh, you're nine Lily (laughs) so beautiful yeah (laughs) making me cry uh, this whole conversation is making me like maybe i should have taken this call with me in my (laughs) (laughs) just sitting here crying in the office (laughs) but that's okay it is so okay 
I wanted to get into more of your own artwork as well. I don't know if you'd want to talk about your work and kind of what that looks like. I saw also that you talk about yourself as a farmer. Yes, I love my farm. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So a little bit about my work. So Mm -hmm. I like I'm a storyteller. I think that's why I'm rambling. And also, (laughs) I love poetry and flash fiction and nonfiction and all of the fictions and all of the things. And I'm an art writer and critic. And so my practice is grounded in literary components and the visual aspects of it are just ways for me not to be stuck in my own professionalism and my own perfectionism. Because as a writer, I want it to be perfect before it gets down to the page. And I want it to sound good before it gets to the page. And I end up editing out all of the beautiful things that I've been working on or thinking Uh. about. So I like to use very non-traditional aspects of art. So like painting with anything but brushes, which is Mm. a concept that I learned from Sachi Rome, who is an Mm Atlanta-based artist who has a series called Anything But Brushes, where she's Uh. creating these these ancestral figures. And she's using credit cards and forks and spoons and all these things. And so because I was so connected to the way that she created, I started using that in my writing. And so sometimes I'm in the garden and I'm writing with dirt. Mm -hmm. So I'll have a big canvas sheet where I'm just, and sometimes it's the same word over and over. And one of the things that I've been working on is I like to call them warm-ups. So I'll just squiggle a bunch of lines on a piece of paper and I'll draw figures in those abstract shapes. And what I'm finding is that all of the figures look like they're folded inwards, which says a lot about the work that I'm doing internally as I'm working through my art. But yeah, so my art, it's poetic. I think I'm working a lot in the margins of the feelings. So the shame, as we spoke about sadness, allowing Mm -hmm. myself to heal through this experience, Mm -hmm. especially as someone who doesn't know how people can support them. So I've Mm -hmm. been using my work as a way of supporting myself and finding Mm -hmm. space to allow those necessary feelings to exist and not be alarmed by their presence. So it's definitely very internal. And I think it feeds it feeds me and it allows me to feed others. And so I'm grateful. And I don't expect that I will be sharing these things now just because I do want to experiment more with installations and creating different physical experiences with my mm-hmm. art as the grounding feature. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's just the thing that feeds me and the thing that I do because I enjoy it and because not doing it meant denying myself all of the beautiful things that I that I deserve. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, that you completely deserve. And I love that within that you know, you're honoring your own feelings. And earlier you talked about honoring your students' feelings. And those two things are just so interconnected. For sure. And I think that's why I I love teaching because Mm -hmm. I'm able to feel vulnerable in front of students and not feel as if this power dynamic has been altered or it's 
oh no, I don't have control because they know my weaknesses. Mm. There's a healthy way for children to be able to detect your sadness or your pain or your Mm. happiness. And so, you know, sometimes when I was in the classroom, you know, students would ask me, Miss Nisa, you you seem different. And I would, yes, I I seem different. I've had a long day. I'm Mm. really exhausted. And right now I just, I think I would like to just be able to to sit and create right next to you. So I would just Mm. play in some Play-Doh. And I said, and they, and they, because I was able to communicate those things, they would just include me in their, in their circle, but never ask me anything. Or they, you know, Lily was always someone who would slide me more clay if she saw that I was running out. Mm. And Uh I think it's important to, to learn those things. And yeah, so I think my, my art is always just a stepping stone for me connecting with other people, because Mm. I think that's, that's what I love most is using art, my art, so that I can be better for myself and mm-hmm. for other people. I think without it, I'm just floating around. I don't know what I'm doing without it. Yeah, I see. I'm picturing, you know, this floating, but I'm picturing like a tether, a string kind of tied. Maybe it's embedded in the dirt in your garden and it's connecting you. It's it's a root. <laughs> it's a yes. Root. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm saying the string that goes in the dirt. Yeah, it's a root. <laughs> well, I said I use garden analogies all the time, and I even said to someone the other day, I grow things. I have no intention on eating. I just love seeing that it'll grow. And then my friends are just like, Yeah, that's what you do with everybody. And I was oh. like, Oh wow. <laughs> Well, I have all this extra kale, so please take it. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. Yeah. You're you're cultivating a little garden, maybe a big garden. Hopefully big. Well yes. see. I planted these ginormous sunflower plants and I have what some kale, some arugula, lettuce. So the goal is to just have a bunch of things that I don't plan on eating and just like giving them away because I don't want to waste it. <laughs> but I also still yeah. want to see it grow. Uh, beautiful. Sunflowers are amazing to see grow. They get so tall and yeah, the way they turn their little faces at the sun. Yes. I, last year I planted my first sunflower and I planted it at work because I spent a lot of time here mm-hmm. and I just thought I just wanted a piece of home, a piece of safety and something that I can just go for a walk mm-hmm. and know that this beautiful thing existed for me. And mm-hmm. someone cut it and I remember crying. Oh. I told all my friends, someone cut the flower. So my oh. friend sent me this song called Come Back as a Flower by Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder and it's sung by an artist whose name I forget but Come Back as a Flower and I would listen to this song and then and a few weeks go by and I walk out and sure enough, there were two more flowers that had started to grow out mm. from where this other flower was cut. And then I was just like, oh, it's in the song. The song said that you can come back as a flower and flowers come back. It's all making sense now. <laughs> yes. So beautiful. So I highly, Now I have to go listen. Yes, you should. You should definitely listen. It is beautiful. And I would sing it, but I know I'm not a singer, so I'm not <laughs> going to put you through that. But it is um, amazing. Yeah, I'll have to look into, see if I can add a clip without getting in trouble. <laughs> if you could do that or see what copyrights have expired or something. Because right, right. It's worth listening to. And I think um, that's 
come back as a flower is literally how I want to live my life. Mm. Like no matter what happens, I can come back as a flower. And the fact that it is not only speaking to my interest in gardening, but speaking to the essential nature of art of this song Mm. is the reason why I felt whole enough to believe that that flower would come back and believe that Mm. people aren't lost causes and that someone who was raised in a racist society will not always be racist Mm -hmm. and someone who is homophobic is mostly just scared of something and doesn't mean that they're unworthy of being loved like you can come back as a flower you can come back softer and stronger and those two things can coexist that soft fragility and that strength those are all things that can coexist and with art you can explore that in very meaningful ways where you're not performing this socialized version of you. Yes. Yes. I can't say it any better. That was just perfect. I don't have the words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have I I spend a lot of time in my head, so and in my garden. Yes. <laughs> one thing, one sort of unrelated to this question that I had written down that we had touched on the business side of art, but I feel like a question artists have anytime we're given the opportunity to talk to someone within the museum world, within an institution, is how does an artist get into a space like this? How do, if I wanted to show my work at Atlanta Contemporary, like, what do I do? How do I make something like that happen? Well, there are multiple ways to make it happen. Atlanta Contemporary, as of last year, started using and employing only independent curators. And so we've had the luxury of having more expansive and thoughtful exhibitions because we're not limited Mm -hmm. to a curator on staff, which has its limitations Mm -hmm. as it relates to narrative and artist exposure. So the question or the answer that I normally give to that question is, as it relates to Atlanta Contemporary, residencies are Mm -hmm. really, really helpful. So in our current exhibition, we have artists who have been a part of the Hambage Art Center art residency that happens quarterly, I believe. We have Mm -hmm. artists who have been a part of our personal studio artist program, which is a three-year program where we foster community and introduce people to curators and collectors through our open studios events and our One for 1K initiative, which is an art sale that we have every May that we started Mm -hmm. last year in response to people not having as many streams of income. Mm -hmm. So To your question, I think residencies are very, very helpful because they create a network that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm -hmm. And I also would say whichever museum space you're most interested in having your artwork in, figure out the curators that curate for that space, Mm -hmm. the art writers who often write for that space and connect with them as a means of connecting with us. Because Mm -hmm. if you have an art writer who can introduce you to, you know, an executive director or 
pitch an idea or a curator who is very interested in seeing your work and says, hey, I love your work. I'm working with something with Atlanta Contemporary. Let me know if these dates work for you. Let me know Mm -hmm. if this show idea works for you. So I think figuring out how to expand before you grow, because Mm -hmm. once you, and this is a a plant analogy, but the root systems of the plants that you often grow are twice, three, four, seven times wider than the canopy Mm. of the plant. Tomato roots grow rapidly. And it's very, very easy for a tomato to be seven feet tall and 10 feet wide as it relates to the root width. Uh. So in the same way that these plants are growing, so should we. Really expand your network, get rooted in your network, and create those sustained relationships. That way, they can water you and allow Mm -hmm. you to grow upward. So when you have Mm -hmm. curators and collectors and art writers and other artists and executive directors of residencies and what have you, when you have those people who are allowing your roots to grow, then there's nowhere else for you to grow but up. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that network, then it's a little bit difficult. And I, I think a lot of the artists who have that network, who've been able to expand their root systems, find themselves being supported time and time and again, especially mm-hmm. with Atlanta being a a city that's really just a small town. Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy and also somewhat comforting. Like when you first were talking about residencies, I feel like that can be a little bit disheartening to hear as a parent and a teacher. I'm like, when, how, like these residency structures are not built for me. So just, you know, the idea that, yes, that's important. That's something, you know, I can look to, you know, the few residencies that might work for someone with a family and a day job. (laughs) Well, and the beautiful thing about what I've noticed now is that there are so many residencies that are realizing that the structure Mm -hmm. that they were using isn't helpful. So Ambage has a residency that's three to four months long, but they also have the Hambage Art Lab, which is Mm -hmm. three months but you don't have to be in your studio the entire time. It's come Mm -hmm. in and out for three months and create and sometimes do a thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. very non-committal. It's you have an idea and we're not going to, you know, press you to be here 24-7 because we understand that you might have other things going on. Then Mm -hmm. you have another residency program, the Creatives Project in Atlanta. They Mm -hmm. offer free housing, their new initiative is free housing and a free studio for artists who need access to free housing and a studio. Mm -hmm. And there are other programs that have different initiatives based off of like, are you a single parent? Are you someone who is not able-bodied? What does that look like to have a residency that centers you? So I think the residencies are slowly transforming for Mm -hmm. the betterment of artists who need them. And some residencies aren't that long. Some are just a month. And so if you just need a month to write the rest of your thesis, you know, you have that. Some residencies don't require 
an application cost. Some residencies require an application cost, but are free. So mm-hmm. I wish I had a website that had all of these things down as a resource. But if you're Atlanta-based, I know the Studio Artist Program at Atlanta Contemporary is subsidized. And we do art sales and open studios to introduce artists to curators and collectors, which has helped drastically. Mocha GA has their working artist program Mm -hmm. and the Creatives Project has cultivated a great community in Atlanta. Ambage Mm -hmm. Art Center is another one. So I don't want people to feel like they have to get into a residency in order to get into a museum. However, what I've noticed is that when you have a residency and that support system and you're rooted in that, you often get more than just one show. So I know of artists who, because of the networks that they have through their residencies or through their art critique groups, they Mm -hmm. are being introduced so that they can have an opening of their solo show online, but then also show at Kennesaw State and also Mm. go to Georgia State's Welch College and, you know, also show in Savannah at a gallery they'd never heard of up until Mm -hmm. recently. So I think the museum isn't the be-all, end-all, and it shouldn't be. And I think that residencies introduce you to other artists, but you also don't have to be a part of that residency. You can also just Google artists who are in that residency and reach out to them. Mm -hmm. And they'll introduce you. I know artists who, you know, they've been in a residency and they've just put their friends on of just, hey, like I was in this residency, so I know this executive director and I think you both would hit it off. Here, mm-hmm. here's a connection. So there are, there are ways to get around it, but it's it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, I feel like really what you're saying is network and be proactive about it. Build that root system, which can be done through residencies, but doesn't necessarily have to. And I did want to shout out another residency program that I know Sachi Rome and Chloe Alexander, who were both, I think, part of the Creatives Project. Yes. They went to Stay Home Gallery, which is a amazing residency program that I'm also connected with. I haven't been yet, but it's 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 a goal eventually when I can fly. Yeah, but that's a, a program that's built for women and totally family friendly, family supportive. That's awesome. Wow. I didn't know that Sachi and Chloe were in Stay Home Gallery and that you're connected. I think you I think I remember seeing a post that you did related to that. Yeah, I'm part of their represented artists for this year, which Yay. has been so helpful and so incredible. So, yeah. I love them. And I wish I lived closer so it was easier to get there and do my own residency. Hopefully they do something where you're at. And I don't know. I feel like this world is so interesting that you could up and take a residency to a different state. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So many possibilities are are available, you know, if we're reinventing the wheel. But yes, I think. Yeah. You know, Sachi, I have nothing but good things to say about her work. Mm -hmm. I recently went to her exhibition that's down the street from Atlanta Contemporary, and it's Portraits from the Mm In-Between. And I'm not sure if you got the opportunity to see it virtually, but if you get the chance to see it virtually and have the time, it is so breathtaking and so magical. It truly is. Mm. Yes, I have to look. I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. And then another resource to share is this 
there's a website called resartists.org. It's like artists without the T at the end. So R-E-S-A-R-T-I-S that has listings of residencies. And I feel like I'm not looking at it now, but I feel like it had like filters and ways to search for, you know, specific places or specific things that the residency provides or has, you know, whether it's fee-based or not, whether it's family-friendly, like all of those things. Oh, that's awesome. That's a really helpful one. Thank you. That way I can share that if someone else asks me a question about residencies. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm writing, I have like a long list of all the links I need to include here. (laughs) <laughs> Which I love because I don't think I knew about the Hambage residencies. Yes, they're doing some really amazing things. I know that the mm-hmm. last cohort they announced, they actually had at least two dancers slash choreographers. Mm-hmm. And then the Hambage Art Lab, there's an archivist or archivist however one pronounces it but right <laughs> I think either I think they're both right yeah, I don't know it's like potato <laughs> potato it's we where we get it uh, <laughs> but yeah so they have someone who works with puppetry over at Handage, which is really cool so a lot of cool things happening I know that it's art is so magical and more people should see beautiful things and so I'm glad that these residencies exist and I wish and hope that they become more accessible for Mm -hmm. people who aren't single artists living on their own because I know a lot of mothers and caretakers generally speaking who are artists and have to navigate caring for an entire life or several Mm -hmm. And can't make room for themselves, a space for themselves, let alone their creation. So I hope that people start to figure out ways to include children in that as well. Even mm-hmm. if it's an art residency for, you know, a parent that also comes with specialized art classes for their children so that like mm-hmm. everyone wins. <laughs> yeah, that would be incredible. Yeah, I know child care is a huge issue with being able to do something like a residency. Definitely. And even so Atlanta Contemporary this year, this is going to be the first year that we do a camp for children. And a lot of the research I was doing, I noticed that camps end at 3 p.m. or 3.30 p.m. And I was just mm-hmm. like, that, that's not practical. And then you right. know, any extended <laughs> Thank camp- you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, people work like nine to fives or 10 to sixes. It's like, that's the middle mm-hmm. of the day. Sometimes I don't send an email until 3 p.m., to be honest. Um, (laughs) But so part of the research that I was doing was trying to figure out the best way for this camp to be a authentic service for people with children, which we have to have extended pickup and it can't Mm -hmm. be at any additional cost. It, mm. it just can't. Who knows when parents are getting off or when something happens and there's an emergency call. So it just didn't seem right. And so I'm I'm so grateful that I'm able to provide a camp that's 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. where every moment of the day will be an art integrated experience of art mm. and science or, you know, children will develop their own film during the second week of camp and during the first week, they'll make their own paper because that's the art and literature week. And, yeah. you, you know, parents, if you get caught up in traffic, which will probably happen in Atlanta at <laughs> three o'clock and it's traffic starts at 12. So, uh. so, you know, those small ways to truly make things accessible and meaningful and mm. allows the community to feel seen so that they know 
Mm-hmm. All right. I know no matter what, that this is a museum space that has thought about me at every moment of the planning process mm-hmm. between picking up and dropping off and all of the little moments in between. I am cared for. My child is cared for. And that means mm-hmm. something. And hopefully those relationships mm-hmm. will mean that Atlanta Contemporary can continue to provide all of these robust programs at little to no cost. Yeah, that's incredible. You're making me want to move there. <laughs> well, I mean, Atlanta's full. <laughs> I want to throw out a couple of more like general just get to know you questions, although I feel like we've already gotten into like the get to know you. <laughs> <laughs> but one that I love, what are you curious about right now? I'm okay. There is a turtle in my backyard and I've never seen it. I was starting a compost bin. And so I just started throwing food in this compost bin. And I'm really curious to know where the turtle is coming from, if it has family, and Mm. what its favorite snack is. I think I've just been very curious about that, as well as the, the bird that is nesting in said compost bin as well. And I want to know uh, when her eggs will hatch because I'm scared to move over there without scaring her and her eggs. So I'm mostly just curious about garden stuff because that's yes, I've been doing a lot of that lately. Yeah, it's it's the time for that. It's spring. Spring is um, spring. <laughs> yeah. And then I love that, like discovering this turtle and wondering about its family and favorite snack. <laughs> and I want to ask that question of you. What is your... I usually say, what is your favorite food? So maybe what's your favorite food? And then what's your favorite snack? Is that different? I, oh, wow. I, hmm, my mm. favorite, <laughs> my favorite snack. I really like the Boom Chicka Pop chocolate mm. drizzled sea salt popcorn Ooh. and honey crisp apples with cookie butter from Trader Joe's or wherever Ooh. you get cookie butter. Yum. Ugh. <laughs> Those are amazing and i can trick myself into thinking that they're healthy because it's popcorn and apples it's like right the the chocolate and the cookie butter like yeah they're there but also Mm. mostly just healthy stuff (laughs) and i I don't i don't know if i have a favorite food because i'm mostly a snacker Mm. i'm like a bird or a turtle that way (laughs) just Uh, eating snacks i love it (laughs) yeah eating snacks and then wondering about other creatures snacks exactly (laughs) Oh, and then is there anyone that you'd want to thank or give a shout out to? My dad and my grandma. Those are my favorite people. And I love exploring with them. And my dad is just Mm -hmm. awesome. I love him. So yeah, shout out dad. Beautiful. (laughs) I love it. Last thing, where can listeners connect with you online? Listeners can connect with me on Instagram at Nisa Imani, where I post updates about my garden. If they would like to know more about the community zines and art kits that I offer, they can reach me at Nisa at artmakes.org. And if they would like to know anything about Atlanta Contemporary Programming, how to get involved as an educator, as a contractor, as a parent, as a whomever, they can reach me at Nisa at Atlanta Contemporary. Beautiful. And I will link to all of that as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on today. I appreciate this and the valuable time that we spent together. It means a lot to me. Yes. Uh, Thank you so much, Nisa, for all of the wisdom shared. And, you know, I'm going to be going forward thinking about coming back as a flower. Yay! I love it. (laughs) 
thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.